The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we are happy to have you here today. We have part two of our two-part series with John Mark Comer. He is the author of My Name is Hope, Loveology, Garden City, God Has a Name, and his latest book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He is also the pastor for Teaching and Vision at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, where he lives, works, and writes. He is an Enneagram One. So let's pick back up in our conversation with Ian and John Mark as they discuss Enneagram and how in growth and maturity, your vice actually becomes your virtue. So here we are with John Mark Comer and your host, Ian Cron. Do you, do you remember in The Great Divorce, there's that famous scene that Lewis writes, uh, so, I mean, just, it's amazing, right? Where the guy has this little sulfur-spitting demon on his shoulder, and the angel says, you know, we got to kill that thing, you know what I mean? And he's like, oh, no, I can't live without it, I can't live without it. He goes, oh, well, you know, if we kill that thing, you can come with me into, you know, into the kingdom. And he's like, ah, I can't live without it. And the little demon's yeah. going, you can't live without me, you can't live without me. And then finally, the, the guy lets the angel kill that demon on his shoulder. And what happens? The demon turns into a beautiful horse. Wow. And the guy rides off into the kingdom on it. And I think that is such a great wow. illustration of what you just said, which is like, Gosh. if you can... Allow God to, if you will, kill off mm. the false self of our personality styles, vice, and you know what I mean? It can actually turn into the horse that you ride off into with glory. So, so literally, your, the vice of resentment and anger, when um, it is, uh, well, let's get right to it. Once it's dead... Yeah. Right. Can be resurrected into something called serenity, which you can ride off on into glory. Wow. That's mm. amazing. And to be, oh gosh, that's like so inspiring to hear that. You just, this is going to be a good day. It's 7 a.m. for those of you listening on the West, on West Coast time. Ian was not very thoughtful for a Pacific Northwester. And, uh, so well, thank you, Ian Cron. Well, but, we, uh, we aim to please here at Typology. <laughs> we aim to please. Hey, you, you know, um, one of the lines that uh, I feel God keeps bringing to my heart that actually came through an in- actually came through an interesting experience. A um, number of years ago, probably five years ago now, I did inner healing prayer with my community, actually, which for, you know, which I don't know if you're familiar with that or that's a part of your repertoire practice, but kind of healing and memories would be another name for it, where you just kind of go back with a couple of people and a trained, there's a person in our community that was trained for it, and you revisit past memories and wounds and ask where God was and ask for God's voice over it, and and you're essentially looking for some kind of inner emotional healing of memories. 
And um, and I have a pretty happy childhood, come from a really health, not perfect, but really healthy family of origin. But the memory that almost immediately the spirit brought me back to was this memory with my mom, who's my mom is my hero. She's kind of who I want to be when I grow up. So I have a great relationship with her. But I must have been, it was when we lived in a house that we lived there from six to 10. So somewhere in the six to 10 range. I don't remember when. And I from a young age could not fall asleep at night because I couldn't turn my brain off. Mm. Um, like I just, I just always all like through grade school, I just could not fall asleep. And so the way that my mom would get fall asleep, she'd come into my room and she would smooth out my bedspread perfectly. I would lay in my back and she'd smooth out the bedspread perfectly. No wrinkles. She'd tuck it in on the sides and it would be just perfect. And she'd give me a kiss. goodnight. And then I was, I so did not want to mess up the bedspread. I wanted it to stay perfectly straight, that I would lay perfectly still, and that's how I would fall asleep. And, you know, she, I don't think, I don't think she, she had no malevolent intent. She was just trying to help me sleep and be a loving mother. But I, I thought, oh my gosh, what does that say about I me? Mean, what six year old can't sleep? until their bedspread is perfectly tucked in, you know? And um, the phrase that I felt in the, when I came back to that memory that I felt from the Spirit was just, it doesn't have to be perfect to have peace. Mm. And that's the phrase that I will just bring to mind every single day. It doesn't have to be perfect to have peace. It's that tree imagery, you know, in the wind. Like, things can be all over the place and a mess and imperfect, and I can still be stabilitas, at mm. peace happy in the kingdom you know yeah man well that's because you know uh the world is full of unmade beds okay the world is an unmade bed ian cron that's Come right on. it is the world is an unmade bed and and so we that's the acceptance of <clears throat> reality <clears throat> that ones kind of have to get to right it's like hey the world is full of unmade beds but that doesn't negate the possibility of my being at peace in it yep Right? That's pretty beautiful. You were saying earlier um, that you kind of have gone through an existential crisis lately with the the Enneagram. You mentioned that before we got started. Oh, yeah. In fact, existential crisis over being on this podcast. My my lovely wife, last night we're on a date, and she's like, what are you doing in the morning? I'm like, oh, I have an early morning podcast with typology and she loves your show and she thought wait what she was like shocked that i would come on because for the last year i've been in this like existential crisis with enneagram and i haven't been telling people my number for the last year or so but it's with like a low level of commitment because i still have all sorts of questions so yeah i think um like i said i got into enneagram maybe seven years ago eight years ago and it was before it was more popularized through the work of people like yourself and others which we're so grateful for and so i'd never heard of it none of my friends were into it it was just like me and my therapist and you know i think i gave a book to my wife early on and um we started spreading it around our church and such but I hate, and I still love Enneagram, but I really struggle with how it's been weaponized. And I really don't, like I said earlier, don't enjoy it as a theory of personality for interpersonal relationships. Uh, just personally, I like some of the other ones. I don't, and I think that could just be my oneness in that I'm so bent to see what's wrong. And I don't want to interpret like 
like if a seven says to me, you know, let's have another glass of wine or whatever, I don't want to interpret that as they're running from the pain of their wound or whatever. I'd love to just say, oh, this is a fun person and let's be together, you know, or whatever. I don't want to interpret malevolent intent toward me or others. I don't want to see the negativity in somebody unless if it's, you know, a really close personal relationship that I, I, I will see that side of them either way and it helps me to to cultivate compassion. But I remember, and you know way more about this than me, but my understanding, so tell me if I'm way off here, my understanding was that for many years in the Jesuit tradition, that it was used, the Enneagram was used between a spiritual director and spiritual directee. And often the director would not even tell the directee what the Enneagram was or what their number was. They would just have this framework. They would get to know the person and they would say, oh, I bet you Ian's a four. And they would just use that framework to kind of help the person pray and grow into maturity. And then maybe if and when they thought the person was mature enough to handle, because there's a lot, people use it in weird ways. They use it in identity ways. They can use it in victim mentality. They can excuse behavior, you know, when they don't use it well or when I don't use it well. When they thought they were mature, Sure enough, they would say, hey, there's this thing called the Enneagram, and I, I think you would identify as a type whatever, you know? And then my understanding is then you're not allowed to tell other people your number because it's an intensely private thing. So I will never forget when I asked my spiritual director, who was a Jesuit priest, hey, what's your Enneagram number? And I'm pretty sure, I'm like pretty sure he was a five and da, 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 da. You would have thought I just asked him like a horribly inappropriate question about his sexuality or how much money he made that year or, you know what I mean? Like something just totally, like you don't ask people, who did you vote for in the last election or whatever? Well, I guess we asked each other now, but he just literally leaned up against the back wall, covered his like arms over and looked down at his feet and said, I'm, I'm sorry, we don't say. So, I thought that was ridiculous at first, but I guess now, a few years in, I see some of the wisdom of that. Um, but maybe I'm crazy. So tell me what you. So I guess I'm just I'm wrestling with that. Like, do I want everybody to know my deepest, darkest motivations? <laughs> and in particular, as a pastor, people project all sorts of stuff onto you. Projections, like one of the main things I deal with as a leader. So people are already projecting their father or some bad experience they had with the man or whatever onto me. I don't know if I wanted them to project oneness onto me too. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm clearly, it's an open question in my mind, hence here I am having this conversation. So can you give me a little free therapy? Sure. And can you educate me a little bit here? Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, some of the history you're describing is absolutely true. That's that's the provenance of the Enneagram, that it was originally used in spiritual direction between uh, Catholic priests and novices or between spiritual directors and directees. Uh, there yeah. was um, more um, hesitancy around talking too much about type and, and knowing each other's types. Uh, I think you know, uh, the Enneagram can be approached it from at least two different perspectives. One would be from a purely psychological perspective. So right. at, at that level, the rules change, right? You, you, yes. You're far more forthcoming. If that makes sense. In the religious setting, it, it, the, the treatment of the, of the, the instrument would be uh, approached very differently. Because <laughs> you're so, talking more about the sin aspect of each. Yeah, that now, makes sense. Yeah, and now remember, you're if if your spiritual director actually is a five, of course they might respond by saying, "I don't talk yeah. about that." <laughs> <laughs> uh, just 
Well, you just weaponized it. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, uh, I'm just saying. Temper- no, just, I'm just you saying. Just, you just interrupted and entered my space. And, you know, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, he might. It might have been. It. You know, if you ask me that question, I'm happy to talk about it. But a five. Oh, I know. It's it's like when people say, "Oh, I'm not, I don't identify with a number enneagram." I'm like, "Oh, that must mean you're a four. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't want to be pegged down, which is my immaturity when I right. think that. But you know, but here's the thing. There is some value to it in that in that regard because you know if if you and and again it, it all depends on how you hold the information if you yeah. if you hold it with a light grip and you say eh, you know I, you know John Mark maybe maybe he's a one and knowing that he's a one um, I'm going to be curious about him mm-hmm. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put this template or this grid over him you know i'm I'm just going to keep this in the back of my mind because i want to know how best to love john mark yeah now i don't have to turn that into an overt conversation right it's just in the back of my mind i'm thinking how can i best serve his interests uh spiritually psychologically how do i support him in his journey uh toward transformation and so i just have it as a little data point floating around in the back of my brain you know yeah um i think i think it can help in interpersonal relationships for sure if it's if it's held well you know it's all about what's your posture toward this information yeah so one of the things i i tell people all the time is just because you know my number doesn't know you doesn't mean you know me yes that's well said so it's it's just a point. It's it's a way of saying, well, um, there is a dimension of Ian's person that seems to fall into this this constellation or these this suite of behaviors and ways of seeing the world. That sounds like an Enneagram one. It's a low resolution picture of what it's like to be Ian. It's not the fullness of who Ian is, but it's a dimension of him that maybe I should keep in the back of my mind. Um, and it, it, what it does is it gives me a way to communicate and to uh, be with Ian in a way that will, uh, you know, create the possibility of his becoming a better Ian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and know? me enjoy it. I think the problem for me, the, the, it's so well said, is I think it takes an enormous amount of psychological and spiritual maturity to handle it the way that you just said mm-hmm. like it takes a lot of relational dexterity i mean to i loved how you said hold it lightly and recognize this is not who it's not a full picture who he is i just think that takes an enormous amount of maturity and the problem is now enneagram is out and it's running wild through our churches and cities and it, which is kind of great but through people across the maturity spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you don't have that kind of mental dexterity and, and emotional maturity, it's just so easy to weaponize, yeah. you know? Sounds like Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like atonement theory. We should only give it to people that are like really mature. Only after you reach a certain level of psychological maturity will we help you actually explain the death yeah. and destruction. Well, you know, people used to say to me all the time, like, well, you know, the Enneagram, I, I went on the internet and, you know, oh, there's a lot of crazy things about the Enneagram. I go, oh, yeah, just uh, throw G- just throw Jesus in the search field and see what comes up. 
Google history of the Western Church and see what yeah. comes. Yeah, you'll you'll oh, get some weird you'll get some weirdness. <laughs> but but you're right. You that know, that's the best answer anybody could possibly give, right there. <laughs> well, but you know, the thing is, right, is we can take anything that's good and distort it. And you know, you have to ask yourself, well, is it better to let it loose and uh, let it uh, do its good where it does it, or do we keep it to ourselves to some small click, uh, like a Gnostic yeah. cult around the Enneagram? I'm like, well. And what, it was cultish early on. I mean, it definitely sounds to me like kind of cultish for yeah. a couple of kids there. Oh, yeah. And so I feel like, you know, I do a lot of re-education. You do a lot of re-education in your job. I do a lot of re-education in my job uh, to try yeah. and get people to have the healthiest sort of expression of their work, uh, their personal, psychological, and spiritual work. You do the same in your your role as a pastor. You know, we're always going around trying to, you know, sweep the street of all the kookiness, you know, and uh, yeah. tr- try to give people the best version of what that, from our perspective, can 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 be had. You know, so yeah, that's that's so well said. Maybe that's just again back to my chronic need to control things to make it all right. You know. Yep. And the way that I just have to release that and let that go, let go of outcomes. Yeah. And just, what is this? Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I, I, I completely agree. I think to say uh, there's only one right way for this thing to be used uh, it would probably be kind of limiting because, you know. Yeah. And I'm not saying that at all. I was just more thinking for my own personal. Yeah. Not, not some like agenda for Enneagram in the world. No, because that's the irony is that I want you to have a podcast interviewing other ones so I can listen. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, listen. Enneag- but I just don't want everybody to know that I'm a one. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Roughly about five hundred thousand people this month are going to know you're a yeah. one. <laughs> so listen. Um, here's a here's the a- irony of it. My wife was like, "Wait, you're doing what in the morning?" <laughs> She's like, you You went from not telling anybody your number for like a year and a half to you're going on a podcast that has lots of listeners. I'm like, well, I need to process my crap. That's right. You said, well, that's my nine wing, baby. Yeah. Um, so, oh, man, that nine wing is something fierce. Oh, it's a good thing, though. So listen, um, you've got a new book. Uh, it's called the, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World. It just, mm. dro- just dropped a couple of weeks ago. Even got the subtitle in. Yeah, just a couple of weeks. All right. I have never heard a title of a book that is more unlike a one than oh really the, yeah the ruthless elimination of hurry because serenity man we're on the path to serenity yeah well yeah but but like so that ruthless elimination of hurry you know ones are notorious for never stopping yeah for constantly uh, you know rushing around trying to fix the world everything they see is sort of a beckoning to work to mm-hmm. not stopping so indexing the windows it, ex- all the things right and so i'm just curious and i you know you've kind of answered the question in our conversation already which is you know you've done a you've done a lot of work on yourself so but you know your typical one the idea that um you could eliminate hurry. It's just not part of the typically of the disposition or the temperament of the one. It's very hard for them to stop hurrying. So I guess tell me about the book and then how it is that you have begun as a one 
to eliminate hurry in your life? So the book is built around a conversation between Dallas Willard, who is kind of my, you know, I feel like every pastor has some thinker in church history that they've built their theological and spiritual paradigm around. So you read a Tim Keller book, and you don't get more than two pages in without a C.S. Lewis quote. You know, for other people, it's Luther or Bonhoeffer or whoever. For me, you know, I think it's just Willard. His his writings have done more to shape the way that I follow Jesus than really anybody that I'm aware of since the New Testament. And um, he once said to John Ortberg, who's another pastor and writer, generation ahead of me, hero of mine, that I get to spend some time with on a regular basis. So John told me this story a number of years ago, and he's since put it in a few of his books. But uh, Willard just told John that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day, and then said you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And there's all there's a whole rabbit trail, a whole book, but there's there's all sorts of things in that that really I just felt a deep resonance with in my soul, and have really come to the conviction that hurry is is incompatible with love. If the telos of the spiritual journey is to become a person of love, and, and how I would define spiritual life, which is such sentimental language that people throw around inside and outside of the church, that I don't think it has a lot of like mental traction anymore. So I would just define spiritual life as our capacity to receive and give love in relationship to God and other people. And um, at that level, hurry is essentially in, incompatible with a life of love. And if I, as I think about it, all of my most unloving moments, all of my worst moments are as, as a husband, father, friend, pastor, are when I'm in a hurry. And, you know, the nature of hurry is not a lot to do. There's a healthy aspect of just I'm giving my life away, but it's just too much to do. And so the only way to cram it all in is you speed up your mind, your body, your relationships and interactions with other people to this insane pace that becomes 100% incongruent with love. Love is patient. That's Paul's first thing on the list, you know. There's a Japanese theologian, Kosuke Kiyama, that I love. He has this little book called Three Mile an Hour God. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that or mm -hmm. read that. Great title. I had to Google it. I'm like, three mile an hour? God, what is that? Apparently, three miles an hour is the speed of walking. And he has this essay on love, and it's so good. It's the title for that book. And he basically just makes the point that, you know, God, we talk about walking with God, not running with God. And he just has this line that God walks slowly because he is love. And if he was not love, he would go much faster. But how love has this speed, this inner spiritual speed that's slow. And, you know, at a psychological level, you know, they, they tell us that, as you know, that listening well and attention and compassion is virtually indistinguishably loving. Even if you fully disagree with what's being said, if you feel listened to and attended to, you feel loved by a person. And love is painfully time-consuming. All interpersonal relationships are painfully time-consuming. So, yeah, I mean, I think in my own autobiography, I was that person that was insane, workaholic, up late driver, ambitious, go, go, go. And I just was an unkind, critical, mean person. Not that I'm all that's out of my body yet. But um, it just hit me really hard. Oh, well, I can't live a life of speed and become a person of love and joy and peace. And so, you know, the book has really come out of that story. And my and then the, so it's, it's aspirational idea. Most people hear that and say, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I want to be happier and more loving and not so rushed. 
but how in the world do you do that with an iPhone and a family and a job and I live in a city, like all the stuff, you know? So the book is also a ton of just practices from the way of Jesus, like Sabbath, quiet, stillness, contemplative prayer that help slow us down and help us live from like a, a deep inner kind of serenity and calm and, and peaceful awareness to what is as we go through the chaos of life and family and parenting and work and the digital age, you know? Mm. Well, I can think of, I mean, it sounds beautiful. I can't wait to read it after you send me a signed copy. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, one of the things that I, I, just as you were talking, I was thinking, wow, what a great book for, you know, every single type on the Enneagram. Um, but for and for different reasons, twos could be running around rushing to uh, yeah to to help others. make everybody happy yeah. and do everything and yeah. do all the things that need to be needed right and and uh, you know threes for uh, obvious reasons achievers uh, for um, sixes and sevens and eights in particular those numbers come to mind very very quickly but particularly for ones what you were describing I love what you were saying that that. Um, you know, if you can learn to live in a different uh, space than hurry, then you can find um, this love and this peace and um, this um, serenity that is really what you're after, you know? Yeah. And so, obviously, to ones who are listening, there is a book written by someone who understands you. <laughs> uh, it is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I promise you, even though I haven't read it, just based on this conversation, it will be of great value to every type. But ones, listen carefully. Because, interestingly enough, John Mark, the two numbers that probably listen to our show and read my book and other things that more than any other types are nines and ones. Really? Mm-hmm. That okay, the one doesn't surprise me at all because we're bent toward self improvement, <laughs> right? Because everything, everything has room for improvement. But why the nine? You know, I don't know. And my wife loves your show, yeah. So I mean, I, you know, I think nines uh, have the potential to be the most spiritually evolved number on the Enneagram, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that they are is that because they have access to so many of the they can be so well-rounded kind of thing. So. Uh, yeah, I think fives and nines are probably the most natural mystics on the Enneagram. Yeah. Um, fives make great Zen Buddhists, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, because of that sort of, and it's not a great feature of them, uh, they, because of, de- well, it's actually not, I mean, the Buddhists would actually not probably use the word detachment as much as non-attachment. Yeah. Uh, but, but, and so I think health for a five is to move from detachment to non-attachment. Yeah, right. exactly. That's think, well said. I think nines are naturally bent when they're healthy towards non-attachment, toward um, they have a very diffuse attention, so they pick up a lot in the environment, sometimes too mm. much. They can be, be yeah. a little bit like one of those uh, little critters. I hate to use the word slug, but that's what it is, that when it gets wet, it just kind of blows up. You know, it's so, oh, po- wow. it's, it's so porous. It's yeah. it's just taking in too much. I think that can happen with nines, and I think that's why. Yeah, my wife is like that. Yeah, they can. That's why they start to narcotize or check out. It's just too much. It's too much know? to take in. Yeah. Wow. Um, while, whereas a three. But yeah, I mean, she is biz- incredibly aware, spiritually, socially, yes. psychologically. When she doesn't check out, she's. I mean, she she's in that space, but without my criticism, moral judgment of everything, mm. she can more take it in without 
moralizing like I do. Right. Just accepting it as it is. It just is. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no judgment, no analysis, no pre-existing biases being brought to the table. Yes, uh, which I bring all of that. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too, right? Now, interestingly about your wife, who is a nine, um, you told me that that was a recent discovery for her and that it was pretty eye-opening. Yeah, you know, that's so interesting. So again, we got on Enneagram maybe seven, eight years ago. I got into it first, then gave her the book. She read Roar's book. And this is before there was podcasts and stuff that we knew of. And she identified as a two right away and um, has sat with that for, I don't know, five years or whatever, six years. And then last summer, through a series of events, basically she realized that she had mistyped herself and she realized that she was a nine and now she just regularly will say to me what was i thinking how do i possibly think that i was a two and she has um she has chronic health issues she has lyme disease which has been a great part of our story and our even our formation and even forcing me and her to both accept reality you know and I think a lot of, you know, she, she would say, well, I don't identify as a, with some of the industriousness of the two, I think because I'm unwell or because I'm tired all the time. And then now she's realizing a lot of what she blamed on her disease is just her nineness. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> so she was like devastated when, la- I remember last summer, she went into almost a depression for a month because she all this stuff that she's like, well, I'm just tired. I have chronic health. And she's like, yes but actually I just check out and don't want to be present (laughs) (laughs) well I mean but it was like I mean that's so funny it was like it caused this stir in our family and community and like when a when a millennial re-identifies as a different type I feel like that's when a baby boomer like when a protestant would become catholic or something it was just like (laughs) the scandal it's not actually a scandal they still love Jesus and follow Jesus but it's like no you can't do that so it was it was all the talk of our little circle of friends for a couple of months last summer. That is fantastic. That's hilarious. Wow. But it's been actually amazing to see, I mean, as she's been sitting with that for the last year, it's been enormously helpful for her and her growth and um, just her realizing how much she does check out. And she, the last six months, has been more present than she ever has. Mm. You know, it's interesting. That is the most common mistype I see is nines mm. and twos. Wow. Really? Yeah. And there's a reason for it that we won't go into, we, maybe at some later date, but it's a, it's a very common mistype. Um, oh want to ask you why but i guess we've got to stay in the one thing <laughs> well actually we got to stay in the time thing man because now, you how, how you say ones and nines are your most common listeners what's your opinion on the and i don't think there's any empirical data yet or maybe there is by now do you think that ones really are the least common type as so many people say or no fours are the least i mean we think we speculate that fours are the least uh represented in the population and that and that sixes are the most uh, there are more sixes than any other type. The, yeah. the, the, the second type that we see uh, or that people speculate uh, is sort of number two represented in the population is nines. Um, so there's a lot of sixes and nines. A lot of sixes and nines. Yeah, you know, because I've heard that my whole life and I've just, or not life, my, since the whole time I've been around Enneagram, but like my own church experience doesn't, like there's a lot of ones in our church and there's hardly any sixes. I probably know less sixes than anybody. And I've always tried to figure out, is that an urban thing? Is that sixes don't migrate towards cities? Is that a church thing? Is that they just disappear? Is that, I know a ton of nine, I know a ton of nines, now that you think about it, 
I would probably have the norm, more, more nines in our church than anybody else. You know, it's interesting. When I do workshops, uh, the, the number that's least represented at it almost every single time is, not, is sixes. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, well, first of all, I think sixes have take the longest amount of time. Some, well, mm. that's, this is... This may be an overstatement. I'd have to think about it more. But, but, but sixes have the hardest time identifying their type. Hmm. Uh, in, in fact, if someone says to me, you know, what type has the hardest time figuring out its type? And I always go sixes. Uh, hmm. it, it's just sort of part of their ambivalence. Uh, the lack of uh, confidence sometimes sixes have in their decision making ability it's like they're yeah. almost afraid to self-diagnose yeah that th- anxiety yeah yeah and and also they don't show up i think at a lot of things because there is that anxiety like well what is this and who is the guy teaching it is he you know is that as the authority figure is that person yeah, trustworthy and, and is and, this an eastern cult and what is this and it looks like the pentagram and right yeah. or but they're yeah i mean six is you know um uh for whatever reason uh, they're even hard to get on the show, um, to fig- uh, not because because they're hard to f- sort of figure out who they are, and and they don't naturally raise their hand and say, "I'm a six. I want to be on your show." Threes all the time are sending me press kits. You know, <laughs> I want to be on your show. I got a new book coming out. You know, or or you know, sevens want to be on because it's going to be a really fun it's conversation. Just, it's just going to be a fun time. Yeah, yeah. And, and nines love to come on, and uh, but I do have a harder time with ones, fives sixes uh getting those types on the show is a little bit more difficult you have a lot of one listeners but they don't like to come on the show you know i mean i've we had a one on uh, who's a dear friend not too long ago and 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 she was like i just sort of stayed up last night preparing for this i mean it's like they they want to do it perfectly they just yeah. they just want to get it right, and so the, there's it creates a lot of anxiety to be on the show, and they get like, oh, you know, I don't know yeah. if I want to. And it's exposure, all your all your stuff. The future is a hefty responsibility, and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Yeah, all these people. All yeah. that. All that. So we're in this sort of Thanksgiving season, and and um, so I have a, a question for you, and and but I'm going to go first. And the, the the question is, you know, at this time of year, you know, what are you at this point in your spiritual journey most thankful for? Like, what is it that just w- brings up a well of gratitude in you? And actually, I won't go first. You go first. You tell me what, what, what that is for you right now. Oh, man. I feel like maybe I should give a really spiritual answer. <laughs> but honestly, we just moved a year ago, and we've lived in the city for many years, which we love urban living and all of that. But we... Ha- Portland is built up against Forest Park, which is the largest urban forested park in America. It's 5,000 acres, and it abuts literally to downtown. So you go right from like 
six-story apartment buildings to just forest. And it's untouched and it's beautiful. And it's always been my, my place to go run and walk and experience some serenity and come to peace. So long story short, we were able to get a house that abuts right up against the forest. So we're right kind of in the city, but our backyard is like, looks out basically on 5,000 acres. You know, you don't see it all, but um, you just look out into the forest. You see nothing but forest. And um, that combined with, I think, some of the inner work that the Spirit of God has been doing in me to just slowly, very slowly, but surely bring me toward serenity. Mm. Um, When those two things come together, external serenity with internal serenity and moments of morning prayer, contemplation, or a Sabbath where I'm just sitting there on the back deck reading poetry or whatever, it's like I couldn't couldn't be more happy and alive just to be at peace in nature. For me, I mean, that's to be at peace with God in a beautiful, quiet place. uh, I can't really think of anything that I'm more grateful for. Lots of great things happening. I have a book out and the church is doing well and blah, blah, blah. Honestly, that stuff's like so far down the band. I just want to like sit in the quiet in the forest and enjoy God and my family you know mm. that's what I'm really grateful for wow that's beautiful I am honestly and I'm not saying this because it's a great wrap for our conversation um, I I am grateful that I get to this is my that as a job I get to talk to interesting people and answer important questions or at <laughs> least or at least try you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Yes. What a what a gift to like just hang out with people and and hear about mm-hmm. their journey to to hear about the mystery of their life and and then also to just get paid to answer interesting questions about life. You know, at least from my perspective. I'm not saying the answer is always right. But at least to to kind of like have to sit and wrestle with them, and yeah, and this conversation is an example of of that um, gift to me, you know. Yeah. So thank you so much. And what a joy that the gift to you is a gift to the rest of us too. Mm. You know, I mean, it's so helpful the things you're saying. Just so I feel like I'm getting free therapy right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like oh. yeah, seriously, I mean, it's just so so helpful well the meter's running um and we are sending you a bill um, <laughs> send me a bill afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> and i don't take insurance um the ruthless elimination of hurry how to save em- stay emotionally healthy and spiritually alive in the chaos of the modern world is john mark's new book i want to strongly commend it to every type on the enneagram but enneagram ones this guy i'm just sure his voice is going to speak into your life in particular John Mark, thank you for for being on with us, and I hope that we have a face-to-face one day at one of these speaking gigs we're at together. Yes, absolutely. Or if you're ever in Portland, uh, you look me up, Coffee's on Me, or Powell's. Let me peruse Powell's with you, and we'll uh, we'll get some good books, fellow literary fan that we are. Yes. Hey, everybody. I want you to remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. (laughs) 